Well, according to legend, on December 31st, 1899, got to go way back, the passenger steamer, the SS Waramo, or Waramu, you ever hear of that one? It's a good name. It sounds like made up, like it should be on, on Mario or something, right? The SS Waramu was quietly knifing its way through the waters of the mid-Pacific on its way from Vancouver to Australia. You can see uh, maybe its path there. The navigator had just finished working out a star fix and had brought the, ma- brought the master, Captain John Phillips, the result. The Waramu's position was latitude zero degrees, 31 minutes north, and longitude 179 degrees, 30 minutes west. The first mate said to Captain Phillips, he said, do you know what this means? He said, we're only a few miles from the intersection of the equator and the international date line. Captain Phillips uh, had a little bit of a prankish streak about him and uh, a little bit snarky and so, uh, so much so that he wasn't going to let the opportunity to take full advantage of this pass him by. So uh, he wanted to achieve a navigational freak for the ages. Here's what he did. He called his navigators to the bridge to check and double check the ship's position. And then he slightly changed course so as to bear directly on his mark. Then he adjusted the engine speed. And the calm weather, uh, it was a clear night. All of that worked in his favor. And at midnight... The Waramu lay on the equator exactly at the point where it crossed the international dateline. Now, at first blush, this might not seem like a big deal. But uh, bear with me here a second, because the consequences of this bizarre position, geographical position, there's is, is many. The forward part of the ship was in the southern hemisphere in the middle of summer. The back of the ship was in the northern hemisphere in the middle of winter. The date on the back of the ship was December, or excuse me, on the, on the back of the ship was December 31st, 1980, or 1899. The date on the front of the ship was January 1st, 1900. Now think about this for a second. This is crazy. So uh, this ship was in two different hemispheres at the same time, on two different days, in two different months of two different seasons, in two different years and two different centuries, all at the same time. Cool. Yeah, so you're like, oh, cool. <laughs> Others of you really think it's cool. Now for the record, we don't know for sure if this actually happened. But legend says it does, and I'm going with legend. (laughs) And I recognize, too, that 1899 and 1900 are actually the same century, but don't ruin my illustration. (laughs) Do you realize what this means for passengers of this ship? If you were on the back of the ship, you had the opportunity to stay there in that day for a few more moments and just savor the rest of 1899. But you also had the opportunity to walk into your future. You could walk to the front of the boat and enter your tomorrow and be the first people to step into the new year. No matter where you are or what the date on the calendar is, you have that opportunity too. You have that opportunity to take some steps and move into the dream 
that God has for you in the future. You can do that. How do you do that? Well, uh, we do this by the spiritual practice of dreaming. You can enter tomorrow. You might not realize it, but I would contend that dreaming is actually a spiritual practice. But most people have to learn how to do it. And when I'm talking about dreaming, we're going to talk about this a little bit today. I'm not talking about like go to bed, have a dream and wake up, right? I'm talking about dreaming in the sense that that you're awake, fully alive, like living into God's dream for you. Dreaming is part of what it means to be human. In fact, it's, it's our unique ability to imagine that tomorrow could be different than today. You're like... Uh, But Josh, I'm not much of a visionary. Well, no, no. If you're a human being, you're a visionary. It's part of bearing God's image. Do you realize that? It's part of being made in God's image that that you're a a visionary. And I don't think that's too lofty of a claim to make. Because if you think about it, if you've ever looked forward to something in the future and told someone about it, you're a visionary. You've been dreaming about the future. Have you ever done that? We, we look forward to the future all the time. Um, we, we look forward to vacations. We look forward to date nights. We look forward to graduations and the completions of a project. We look forward to the relief of physical pain or a filled belly. It's important to see that as a human being, you're a visionary and you can dream and you can look into the future. You can, like the people walking across the bow of that ship, you can walk into the future simply by dreaming. And it's, I would contend it's a spiritual practice when it's done in a God-honoring way. It's part of what makes you an image bearer. But here's the deal. When you stop dreaming about the future, you either stop, start fantasizing or you just click into surviving with your life. You quit dreaming, you quit planning, you quit thinking, what would God have? And sadly, this is where so many people live. They fantasize and survive, or they survive and fantasize, constantly going back between the two. Uh, One guy says, we're zombies by day, and we're insomniacs at night, (laughs) because we don't take time to dream God's dream for us in the future. And when we live this way, friends, you, you lose part of your humanity, part of what it means to image God. And God has a different way for us. He wants us to dream and plan rather than survive and fantasize. Hey, I want to talk to you about the spiritual practice of dreaming and planning with your life. And it's something we find God calling his people to do in Jeremiah 29. So you can turn there if you want. We're going to be in Jeremiah 29. Uh, but in the meantime, let me set a few things up. Uh, for the past few weeks, we were, we're in this series called 2020 Vision for Life. And we've been uh, dipping in and out of the book of Jeremiah, looking at his life, looking at uh, the progression of things for the people of Israel. And uh, what, it, what it looks like to have a vision for your life. That, that God, we saw the first week, that God made you more unique than you think. Like Just like Jeremiah, Jeremiah had a purpose and a plan uh, that was consecrated for him by God before he was ever formed in the womb. Just go read the first few verses of, of the book of Jeremiah. It's undeniable. We read about it in Psalms as well, uh, that God has a plan and a dream for you that he had planned out all of your days long before any one of them ever came to pass. He's been dreaming about your life, preparing good works for you, Paul writes in Ephesians. Beforehand, before you were even around. Uh, 
And we've talked about some of the false versions of ourself that keep us from living into that. And uh, instead, we've turned our ears to try to hear what God says about who we are. Last week, we started talking about uh, having you dream a little bit about uh, what are those, what's that calling God has in your life? How do you express how he's uniquely made you to, to, uh, to honor him and love others? And today, we're going to talk about dreaming a bit. I want to take another step on this journey and invite you into two spiritual practices of dreaming and planning. Now, I got to say this right off the top too. I told you to turn to Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is one of the most overused out of context verses, used out of context verses in all of scripture, right? Do you know that? I mean, how many of you, you know this verse? Like, I didn't even, it didn't even have to be up on the screen. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to, so many of you, yeah, prosper you. And plans for a hope and a future and, and all these things. And chances are, if you've even followed Jesus for any length of time, there's, there maybe even could be a trinket in your home, you know, or hanging in the bathroom that has this verse on it somewhere, right? So I acknowledge that right away that this verse, I mean, and the reason it gets used out of context sometimes is because it's a powerful verse. I've got it highlighted in my Bible. The, the, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, but to give you a hope and a future. However, even though it's often quoted, it's seldom understood. And uh, too often, this passage has actually been used to justify the American dream. And it was never intended to justify the American dream. In fact, you could probably take a lot of what I've said even in the course of this series, and if you took it out of context from where I've said it and from how we've taught it, you could accuse me of being a health, wealth, gospel, prosperity guy, right? You could, you could take some clips and you could make me out to look like a fool on the internet pretty easily. Or if you were dipping in and out and not paying attention. Uh, and a danger of preaching a series like this is that uh, some will almost certainly hear the things I'm saying even today in that light. But uh, I'm just telling you, that would be an error. And the reason for that is some preachers have pulled this passage from its context to claim that saying yes to Jesus is the equivalent of walking an easy path to health and to wealth. But it's simply not the case. Nothing could be further from the truth. So today I want you to hear this passage in its context. And and the setting of this passage is incredibly critical for you to understand really what it's saying and what's happening here. So again, let me give you some background. For centuries, or for centuries, for decades, Jeremiah has been prophesying to God's people. The southern two kingdoms of Judah, and if we take it all the way back in history, just really quickly, Solomon was the king of Israel at one point, and and Israel was huge and prosperous, as large and as prosperous as it's ever been. But after his death, uh, Rehoboam comes to power, and uh, because of sin, the kingdom splits, and the 12 tribes of Israel divide into two different nations, two different kingdoms. There's 10 tribes to the north and there's two tribes to the south. And God had told them way ahead of time, like, if you obey me, things are going to go really well. Choose to obey, choose blessing. But if you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer and I'm going to discipline you. And so they they chose uh, the the northern kingdom. They had 19 kings. They all disobeyed. And over the course of of, uh, a couple hundred years, basically, they turned from God. And in 722, God sent the Assyrians in to just totally house them and take them into exile. 
He was keeping his promise. They chose to sin. Now they're going to suffer. And he's doing that because he loves them. He wants them to, he wants to turn their hearts back to him. And now these southern two tribes of Judah, that's where Jeremiah is at. He's at the end of these southern two tribes being around because 150 years later in 586 BC, the, the southern tribes are taken into exile by the Babylonians, by King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes in and cleans house. He sets up a, a new king in Jerusalem. And he takes all the, the, the leaders and the craftsmen and the artists first, and he takes them into exile. And then he comes back and takes a whole wave of others into exile. And Jeremiah is a prophet during this time in the southern kingdom. And he's saying, hey, guys, you need to turn. Don't you get it? Like, if you don't turn, the same thing that happened to Israel is going to happen to Judah. If, if we don't turn back to the Lord, we're going into exile next. God said it. It'll happen. Trust me. It will happen. Well, Jeremiah was constantly written off by others saying, oh, come on, Mr. Terror. I mean, just give it up. Like, we don't want to hear this. And there were false prophets that came up and prophesied things uh, against what Jeremiah had said. No, don't worry about that. He's just Mr. Doom and Gloom. Actually, things are going really, really well for us. And uh, things are going great. And um, just don't worry about that. And, and, and we're going to be fine. That's what God really says. Well, Jeremiah continues prophesying. And when we get to Jeremiah 29, the inevitable has begun to happen. Exile has started. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He sets up his own king to be faithful to him. He takes the leaders to try to break Judah. He takes the leaders first into exile. He'll later come back for the rest. And it's during this time he was trying to break Judah's ability to rebel again, deporting its leaders, its soldiers, its craftsmen, And the exile had begun. And Jeremiah was one of those who were left behind in Judah with most of the population who were poor peasants. It happened in three waves. And this first wave, Jeremiah is left behind. And at this moment, his message begins to change. It begins to change in a pretty radical way. He had long preached a message of judgment to those who refused to repent. But here in these verses, Jeremiah now gives a word of hope and of grace and of mercy in the form of a letter to the people who had been exiled to Babylon. He's writing to them, right at the lowest part of Israel's history in the most miserable situation. He calls them to dream and to plan, to dream, to look forward to God's hope that he has for them. He speaks into their current reality And he calls them to get their eyes forward on what God has in the future. Read with me from Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm just going to start in verse 1. We'll work our way up through uh, verse 14 this morning. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. So he's sending it from Jerusalem to Babylon, to the priests, the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It goes on down in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. Does that seem like advice you'd be hearing like after you had just gotten sacked because of your sin? 
And yet God comes and he has a word for them. He's like, okay, listen, yeah, you're being disciplined, but here's what needs to happen during this time. Dream, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Your translation might say in its prosperity, you'll find your prosperity. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Remember, there were some, and if we, we'll go back maybe a little bit later this morning in chapter 28, some of them uh, started saying that, no, it's really not going to be that bad. Like, uh, even now that we're in exile, we're only going to be here for a couple years, and then God's going to send us back, and it's going to be awesome. Don't, don't sweat it. God's in control, right? Which sounds like if you're in that spot, yeah, that's the vision I want to believe. Would you agree? Like, just two years of this, and then we're going home. But God says, don't believe them. It's a lie, verse nine, that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Not two years, like they would say. 70 years, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Think about that for a second. God kind of gives them a dream for the future, doesn't he? He gives them a preferred future, a a better future, a hope. But 70 years, if you had been taken into exile and you were over five, there's a good chance you're not going back, isn't it? That you're not going to see the reality of what God has promised actually come to pass. but he gave you some instructions of what to do in the midst of it, didn't he? Listen, I am gonna do this. Now live like this in the midst of it, he says. And then here's what he says. For I know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now remember, the people who hear this originally are probably not gonna live through the exile. They're gonna die in Babylon. But God says, listen, don't worry. I I know the plans I have for you. And yeah, you're, I mean, he doesn't say it, but you read between the lines, right? Yeah, you're probably gonna die here, but check this out. My plans for you are for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, that's not the American dream that you can just pull up your bootstraps and do whatever you want and make the most of yourself. That's the promise of God that he's gonna be with you through the mess as you trust him and follow him and continue to seek him and, and keep your dreams and your plans in line with what he has revealed and said in his word. Does that make sense? Then you will call upon me, the Lord says, and, and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. See, God gives them a dream of what the future is gonna look like. And that's really what a God dream is. It's a vision for a better future that can only be achieved with God's help. And I believe he has some of those dreams set up for you and for me and for our church. 
Like, because he's like, he, Ephesians 2.10, right? Like he's been planning good works for us in advance for you and I to do them. He's got a plan. He's got a dream. Well, in advance. And, and it's things that are, it's like this preferred future. Would you agree? Like, that's the thing I want to do. I want to do what God has for me to do. I want to live out that dream. Would you agree? See, but there's a difference between God dreams and just simply fantasy, human fantasy. And so what I want to do is I want to look here briefly this morning at kind of three distinctions between a God dream, which is a better future, uh, in line with reality, God-centered, gospel-focused, and a human fantasy that's out of line with reality and that's me-focused and all about me and my comfort. Yeah, yeah? All right, here we go. Here's distinction number one. God dreams face reality. God dreams face reality, but fantasies, on the other hand, they totally deny reality. When God has a dream for the people here in exile, his dream faces their reality. Where's he writing this to them from? Where's he sending this message to them at, I should say? While they're in exile. While they're being uh, disciplined for their sin. It says right away in verse 1, to to those who are in exile. It doesn't deny reality like like the false prophets did. It, It faces it. And God dreams start by facing our current reality. It's in reality that God meets us with love and hope and faith. And love is what helps us deal with the what is. We heard Bart's testimony this morning and seeing that sign and this dream that to know that he was loved made all the difference so that he could face reality Turn back to the Lord. That, that's what love does. That's why we have this blazing sign out there that says, you are loved. So that you would understand and that people would understand and know they're loved by Jesus Christ. They're loved by us. Because whether you realize it or like it or not, you are loved. And it's when you begin to receive that love and become a Christian and follow Jesus Christ, receiving that love for you, that's when things change. Do you get it? And love helps us deal with the what is. And love then, when we know we're loved, it leads to hope. Like, well, there's a, there's a hope for me. There's, there's something for me. God actually cares. In, in the midst of exile, these people get this message from Jeremiah that says, God says, listen, I know the plans I have for you. I love you. I care about you, even in the mess. And now suddenly there's, there's a little bit of hope, right? And a lot of times, though, hope begins with frustration. Frustration with the reality of what is right now. But when you camp out in in God's love for you and what's true, and as you turn your eyes to Jesus, that hope becomes faith and this confident assurance of what will be because God promised it. He has good plans for his people, Israel, here. Now, while that's a promise to Israel, God does not change. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're one of his children. And just as he had good plans for them, I'm I'm telling you, I I believe I can say this with confidence. He has good plans ultimately for you and dreams for you. And it begins with receiving that love, facing reality as it is right now that I need a savior, I need Jesus, I need someone to help me. This isn't naive optimism, that's a fantasy. In management, uh, in, in, in management guru Jim Collins' book, uh, Good to Great, he interviewed a guy named uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale. 
You see a picture of him here on the screen. And he, he was looking in this book, Collins was looking in his book at organizations that displayed unusual excellence and he identified the characteristics that these companies had in common from, to go from good to great. And he illustrated one of them in an interview with Admiral Jim Stockdale. Stockdale had been the highest ranking naval prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton during, Vietnam, during the Vietnam War. Now, uh, the Hanoi Hilton, if you're not aware, was uh, the prisoner of war camp for American POWs in North Vietnam. Uh, its actual name, Hua Lo Prison, means uh, literally uh, fiery furnace or hell's hole. And that's probably all I need to say about what that place would have been like for him. As he was taken a prisoner of war and in his time in captivity, he persevered in the midst of just incredible torture and suffering, and he made it through. And so Collins asked Stockdale, how did you make it through such devastating circumstances? And here's what he told him. Stockdale said that part of what allowed him to survive was that he never gave up believing that in the end, he and his comrades would prevail, and that this would be the defining moment of his life going through this. Collins then asked a follow-up question, what about the people who did survive, who didn't survive? You know what Stockdale's response was? That, was the, that would be the optimists. And he goes, well, I, hold on, I don't understand. You just said uh, that you persevered because you had this vision out in front of you that uh, you were going to make it, like you were optimistic about the future. He said, yeah, but don't confuse that vision and that belief for that future with naive optimism. <laughs> because the optimists would say, oh, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go, and they were still there. Oh, well, maybe it'll be Easter. Surely the world will be over by Easter. And Easter would come and go, and they were still there. And eventually they died, he said, of a broken heart. It's kind of the same as those, those false prophets in Jeremiah 28, right? Like, oh, it'll only be two years, and then this is all going to be over. And God says, no, that's not actually the case. It's going to be 70 so dreaming and having a hope for a future doesn't deny reality. It's not fantasy. It says, you know what? My situation is this. <sighs> That's how I would sum it up. But I know God loves me. And in that love, I can face what is. And I can dream and have confidence that he has a dream and a preferred future for me because he is good. Make sense? So distinction one between dreams and fantasies, God dreams and fantasies, God dreams of face reality, fantasies totally deny them. Number two, God dreams work through reality. They work it out. Fantasies just try to escape reality. They start, uh, God dreams start by facing our reality, but they don't end there. They actually work through it. In Jeremiah 29, he describes a tension for Israel's new life. He says, for thus says the Lord, verse 10, when 70 years are completed, it's going to be 70 years, then I'll visit you. On the one hand, they needed to believe that, that God would one day bring them back to Jerusalem and restore all they had lost. It would, it would be 70 years, but one day they would return. So their stay here was not permanent. But on the other hand, for those 70 years, they're going to live in Babylon. Man. And in Babylon, uh, they needed to have a plan. They needed to settle down, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children. We read that earlier in chapter 29. You ever felt caught between Babylon and Jerusalem? Like you have this dream for what could be, but man, I'm stuck here. 
in this reality, whatever that reality might be in my life or this situation. Maybe it's one I've even made for myself. Well, at this point in Jeremiah's prophecy, God tells his people that even though he has a dream, he also has a plan. See, the dream is like uh, the, the preferred future, God-centered. The plan is how they're going to get through the ups and downs until that comes. And so it's a, it's a dream like God would dream in line with his word, in line with reality. But then also uh, God gives them actually plans to start working through it. God said that his prosperity isn't just tied to their eventual return. Instead, he wants them to prosper in Babylon too. Now, prosperity, hear this for what it means. It means to succeed, to flourish. It doesn't necessarily mean financial prosperity, right? So flourishing is a better word, that that they're going to flourish, that, that their welfare is in God's view, he tells them their, their flourishing is tied to the flourishing of Babylon, that very city that dragged them into exile. He tells them to seek and plan for the peace and prosperity of Babylon, even while they dream of one day returning to Jerusalem. For, for us as followers of Jesus, that means we seek the welfare of our community, right? Like we get out, we get involved, we're sent to love people, even if the love is never reciprocated. And we're sent to do that. Why? Because in the good of our community and the good of this place is our good. And because God tells us to love our neighbor. <laughs> so we ought to obey him. But, but he, he gives them plans of how they're to live all this out. And the hard to swallow truth is that the road to God accomplishing his dream would be filled with lots of ups and downs. I don't know about you though, but I, I kind of want the straight line to God's dream. I want the like point A to point B. I'm right there. But how many of your lives, that's like totally not the case? Anybody with me? Yeah, like every hand should be sky high right now. Totally not the case. Lots of ups and downs. But do you know God actually uses those ups and downs? Those are, are not a deferment of his plans for you and his dream, if we want to keep using that word for you. It's actually part of how he's going to bring you there. I want to introduce you to this guy named Bruce Yeeney. Bruce Yeeney is a middle school uh, science teacher, and he talks about and illustrates this fact uh, between potential kinetic energy. He has two paths. He calls one the upper path and the other one the lower path. The upper path is a straight line, two, two points, shortest path from here to here. The next one, the next track, the lower track is actually about seven to eight inches longer than the first track. And so he's going to set this up. I'm going to quit talking, but the question is, Will the ball get there quicker on the straight path or the lower path? In this segment, I'd like to take a look at something I call the high road, low road track. Uh, as you can see, the tracks are the same length. Uh, they start at the same height. They end at the same height. But the paths from one side to the other are completely different. This one takes the shortest possible path, which is a straight line. On this track, it starts and then it goes down for a distance and then the ball has to come back up to get to the opposite side. So the question is, if I were to release the balls from the same height at the same time, which track would get the ball over to the opposite side the quickest? Now, before we actually do this, I would have my students come up with a hypothesis, give me an explanation of why they would pick one track over the other, or, or maybe they're going to get over there at the same time, but they need to make a prediction before we try it. So let's take a closer look.
that the shortest point between two points is a straight line. Yet what happens? The potential energy is kept in the first ball, but it's released into kinetic energy in the second one. God uses, I think this translates to our lives, he uses the ups and downs. But my life isn't a straight down and up, it's a up and down. Keep watching. Oh, It's having to travel a little bit further up and down. Uh, let's see if that's going to be enough to slow the ball down so that the race is going to be equal. Like you don't know how many ups and downs I've got, Josh. Surely God can't use that. Even with more ups and downs, the ball, like this totally illustrates how God uses the messed up realities of our life. When we face reality, like see, God's dreams, they work us through reality. Fantasy just tries to escape them and think, oh, I'm just gonna go the straight path and I'll get there. I don't have to go through the pain. I don't have to go through the suffering. Nonsense. God uses these things. It's not the dream deferred, it's the dream defined. It's it's the realities of what his dream looks like as he brings us along this path. And he wants you to plan, uh, not a naive plan for the future, like I'm I'm gonna get there and I'm gonna step out every little detail in my life until I get there. No, it's like there's this dream on the horizon, but that's on the horizon, that's way out there. And so that's that's for for Israel, that's, that's like 70 years out. So what do I do now? How do I honor the Lord now in the meantime? Well, that's when there's a plan. Build houses, uh, bear children, multiply, be fruitful, all those things, right? And that's that God dream language shows up all throughout scripture. That's what he told Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's what he told Noah after he got off the ark. Be fruitful, multiply. Listen, I've got a plan. I'm gonna work it. It's gonna happen. Trust me in the process. For some of you, it's really easy to dream For some of you, it's really easy to plan and you're at odds with each other because the dreamers and the planners are not the same, right? The the, the planners look at the big dream and they go, I've never seen a dream where anybody's ever gotten there. I've never seen a plan good enough to get me enough steps to get me there. The planners go, I've never seen a plan that's that's really God-sized and is any more than a glorified to-do list. You gotta do both. You gotta look out what does God have in the future and then how do I live now? That's what he gives his people here in exile. So God dreams face reality, fantasies deny him. God dreams work through reality. They, they, they work through it, through the ups and downs. Fantasies try to escape it, but, but God dreams face it. And then the third distinction, just quickly, God dreams become reality. Fantasies leave you stuck in reality. Or you just escape. You ignore what God has said. So that's what I mean by it says God dreams become reality. What God has said happens. It's the final difference. As enticing as a fantasy might be, like the false prophets in Jeremiah 28, they never really change your reality. And in the end, you're right where you started. You're stuck. But dreaming like God would have you dream, in accordance with his words, centered on the gospel, on his plans, they do change reality because they become a new reality as God works those good things he's promised out in our lives. Israel's history proved it. 70 years after all of this, they left exile and they entered back into the promised land. They did return. God did alter their reality according to his dream for them. And meanwhile, stories of people like Daniel and Esther show us that his people flourished in the midst of this, in the midst of the ups and downs. He was with them and he cared for them. 
And God promises the same for you and I. (coughs) Friends, we'll close with this. In the Christian tradition, we have a word uh, for everything that we've been talking about today. It's the word confession. You're like, huh? Yeah, confession. Here's what I mean by this. Christians make two types of confession. We make confession of sin and we make confession of faith. Confession of sin is a confession of what is. I messed up. I need God's love. I need Jesus Christ to save me and to make me new. I need help in a big way. It's a confession of sin. But we also, on the other hand, make a confession of faith where we don't just stay where what is, but we look ahead to what will be according to what God has said. That's a confession of faith. God, this is what your word said. I believe it. Even though I don't necessarily see it right now, I don't get it right now. I I believe it. I believe you're good. I believe you'll bring these things to pass that you do have a plan and a future and a hope for me. Lord, help me live in light of that in in reality, not denying reality, but in reality, looking forward to that future you've promised. That's that's faith. Believing God's word. What he said will happen. And we make both of these confessions. And so I would invite you today into both. And dreaming is, is, is an act of faith. Maybe that's the word you'd prefer today. But either way, I invite you to face reality, to work through reality, and through dreaming and planning, dare to dream what God might have for you. Now, this invitation isn't important just for you alone. It's for everyone around you. Remember, God told uh, the people in exile to, to do these things. He gave them a dream for the future. He gave them plans for now, not just for their benefit, but for the benefit of all of Babylon around them. So I'll leave you with three questions. If you're just kind of staying stuck in fantasy land and not uh, looking, where is God leading? What, what, does, what does God have for me? Looking to his word, looking to Jesus for your future. Three questions. Who are you robbing of their prosperity? Remember, they're, they're, they're flourishing because you're not dreaming and planning with your life. And it doesn't matter your age on this, by the way. It doesn't. You're still breathing. There's still things for you to do. There's still plans God has for you. Who's still in poverty because you're not dreaming? Again, not just financially, but emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually. Who's still captive because you're not dreaming of what God would have for you and you're not following him and walking in obedience according to his word by the power of his spirit? Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, uh, Lord, that you do have a plan and a future and a hope and I would dare say even a dream for us that there's things you look forward to in our futures that uh, for any who've called upon you Lord uh, you say clearly in your word that the plans you have uh, the joy and abundant joy that you have ahead we, we can't even imagine it so we look forward to that day We trust you. I pray for each one here, Lord, that you would give them a glimpse of of your love for them so that they could face their reality, that they could work through it, and that they could trust you for the future you have for them in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.